Welcome and good morning, everybody. My name is Sarah Shotwell, and um, I am not a pastor. I have not been to seminary, but I am a high school history teacher. And um, I am so excited to get to do this series on uh, church history. And we did about three weeks ago um, a history in, of the church in late antiquity up into what was called the Council of Nicaea. And today we're going to be talking about the Middle Ages, which is a huge period of time that we need to cover, about a thousand years in a little under an hour. So I'm going to do my best to get us there. Um, so this is going to be a very, very, very um, light overview, and I'm just going to be diving into a few critical concepts and topics that I want to talk about that's going to give us a snapshot of faith and its development in the Middle Ages in specifically Western Europe. So as we talk about Christianity, we're not going to be focusing at this um, time on what was happening in the East. Um, and instead, we're going to be focusing what's happening in Western Europe and the Christianization of the pagan tribes and how faith was impacted and how the Roman Catholic Church developed during this period. This is a picture here of Charlemagne being crowned emperor in the year 800. We're going to talk about that today as well. So last time, I started with a little uh, timeline. And this is a timeline of the Middle Ages and the time that um, we're going to be sprinting through today, um, starting with the Council of Nicaea. And I mark that as the beginning of the Middle Ages because um, that was a distinct time when the Christian faith was irrevocably changed because the church leaders sought consensus on some critical theological doctrines and then, shortly after that, those doctrines actually became Roman law. So we saw a time when the church was under persecution, greatly fractured, and had a decentralized model of leadership, moved to a time where Christianity was actually the state-sanctioned religion of the Roman Empire. So you can imagine how much a faith changed in that short window. Um, you'll see a couple of points up here on the timeline. We have the reign of Theodosius I, that was when the Nicene Creed became law. So the church switched from being under persecution to um, indicting and criminalizing any faith or belief that was not endorsed um, by the Council of Nicaea. Um, then we have all of these huge historical events that were very important. And as we look at church history, it's important to keep it uh, in our minds, the back of our minds, that these larger political movements happening throughout Europe was the backdrop and often the catalyst for how the church changed. So we have um, Gaul seized by Germanic invaders. We have the Anglo-Saxon invasion of Britain and the Roman Empire leaving Britain, abandoning it to the Anglo-Saxons. We have the fall of Western Rome, hugely important. Rome at that time was divided in two. There was the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire. So when we talk about the fall of Rome, we're talking about the western part of Rome. The seat of Rome then moved to the east in Constantinople, and the Roman Empire was carried on from there. We have the start of the reign of Justinian. Gregory the Great becomes pope around 590. Missionaries are sent from Rome to Britain, Ireland, and France. Then in 610, critical moment in the Middle Ages, the faith of Islam was founded, and that will irrevocably change Europe. Um, we see the Viking invasions happening starting in 793. Um, Charlemagne is crowned emperor of Rome uh, in France in 800. 
We'll explain that later. Then we have the Norman invasion of England, the First Crusade, Genghis Khan launching attacks in Russia and Eastern Europe, um, the Inquisition, the Black Death, the Hundred Years' War, and finally the fall of Constantinople, which marks the end of the medieval period and ushers in the Renaissance. So a lot to cover, and the church changed and evolved quite a bit during this time, as did faith. A couple of things to, this is an oversimplification, but if we're going to boil down some differences between late antiquity and the Middle Ages, here are some things we can look to. In late antiquity, we saw decentralized leadership, which I mentioned. We saw theological diversity. So not everyone could agree, for example, on the corporeal makeup of Jesus. And people were arguing, is Jesus fully divine? Is he fully man? Is he fully both? If so, how? People had different interpretations. There were persecution of Christians happening. People were seeking unity, but they were seeking unity through the consensus of church leaders across the empire. The faith was infused with Greco-Roman values um, and also aesthetics. So when we think about architecture, art, um, worship styles, that was very much um, infused with, with the aesthetics of Greece and Rome. And then the main seat of the faith was in Turkey, in Constantinople. In the Middle Ages, we see power increasingly centralized around the papacy in the West. We see the emergence and adherence to theological orthodoxy. So we're done with diversity, and now everyone is expected to be unified in their beliefs. Instead of the persecution of Christians, we see the persecution of the opponents of Christians, whether that were Jews, Muslims, or heretics. We see then um, unity is created. Also, unity is still a value, but it's created through obedience to the leaders of the church, as opposed to creating consensus among the leaders of the church. And we see an infusion of Germanic Western values and aesthetics. So we'll see the art change. We'll see the architecture change. We'll see um, things like values and um, ideologies change based on the Western Germanic people and what they valued. And then we'll see the main seat move from Rome uh, to Rome, Western Rome, and then occasionally to Paris. So this is just some review from last time. The Nicene Creed is what we addressed last time, and this was to just boil it down, a list of theologies that were officially sanctioned by the Universal Christian Church under Emperor Constantine. And in 325, we'll remember, Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor, invited 220 bishops, primarily from the east, because the west was far away, people couldn't get there. 220 eastern bishops met at Constantine's summer home, and they debated theologies. And they came to consensus. It wasn't an absolute unanimous decision, but a strong majority held that certain theological bullet points were true, and certain were considered heresies. And what was primarily defined was the definition and nature of the Holy Trinity. And when people said, I am a Christian, or I am a Nicene Christian, that was the title, that meant I believe and uphold the Trinity as sanctioned by the church. There were other views on this at the time, people who called themselves Arian Christians, who would say they uh, believed many, many of the things endorsed by the church, but they did not believe in the full divinity of Christ. They emphasized the humanity of Christ. 
really important because these um, heresies threatened to tear apart the church, and the church for a thousand years was combating ideas that they believed were false. So one thing we asked last time, and we won't pause to discuss quite yet, but what were the benefits of the Nicene Creed and the legalization of Christianity, and what were the drawbacks? And some of the things that were brought up by you guys as a congregation were really, really interesting points. Some of the benefits were that suddenly the church wasn't in persecution anymore, so that was something to be very celebrated. People could practice their faith publicly. Suddenly we had the emergence of public debates on theologies, and people could discuss and talk about these things in public. Um, and certainly, a Christian emperor was a boon to the church, and the Nicene Creed created a sense of unity among people. They knew who the, who the Christians were based on what beliefs they could ascend to. But there were drawbacks, too, and some of the things you guys brought up were creating these sudden insider-outsider dynamics, emphasizing belief and what we intellectually ascend to as the definition of faith, as opposed to how we live it out in a holistic way, um, the fact that suddenly, with a Christian emperor, a lot of people are converting to the faith for political reasons, and it's harder to, for the church to tease out who's converting for genuine reason and who is doing it for um, financial or political gain. So there were drawbacks as well. This brings us into um, a question that is going to dominate our discussion today and moving forward through the next two two sessions that we're going to do on church history. And the question is about how faith and culture interact. One unique thing about the Christian faith is that unlike other religions of the day, it was not tied to one specific ethnicity. So the Christian faith, um, although Latin became the dominant language in the West and Greek became the dominant language in the East, is not reliant upon those languages to thrive. Um, Christian, Christianity can be for Jews or Greeks or Americans or the Chinese, and Christianity by nature expresses itself through whatever culture it comes in contact with. There's something about that that's really incredible, and there are a few hazards that come with that as well. Because sometimes the parts of our culture that don't exactly jive with the teachings of Jesus get adopted into the faith as well. And immediately we see uh, with Rome is that we have all of these Romans, and they have Roman values. And some of the values of Rome are law and order and organization and structure and reason. And then we also have the military, and we have torture in our legal system, and we have strict uh, hierarchies and a, a sense of obedience to those above you. And we see all of these values co-opted into the church in the West. Values that may or may not have been supported by the teachings of Jesus. The first time I came in contact with this idea that culture could define a lot more about how we practice our faith than the actual teachings of Jesus was when I was studying abroad. And I studied abroad about a mile from this little village, and this is the church we attended. This is called Ramsau, it's in the Alps in Austria. And in the Alps, there is, it's a very traditional place. People still wear lederhosens to church. They still trot their goats through the street, carrying flower baskets. I mean, it's like the sound of music. It's amazing. But people have very old traditional viewpoints about faith. And there was a belief in 
out that Christians should not play sports. Okay? Deeply held value. Because sports, to play sports, to participate in sports, to be a sports fan was seen as idolatry. So deeply held value of these people. And there were sports ministries in Austria trying to teach kids, you don't have to choose between being a Christian and being an athlete. You can, in fact, have a faith and play a sport. It is possible. And this was like mind-blowing to these people. They couldn't quite wrap their minds around it, especially the older generations. And I realized, as an American, it didn't make sense to me at all. But these people were so zealous in their viewpoint. And that came from a cultural belief that they held about sports. And it got me thinking, what are the things in my own faith that are culture and culturally driven? And what are the things in my faith that are coming from the essential teachings of Christ? And it's taken me a, a lifetime and will continue to take me a lifetime to separate those things out. And it takes a lot of stepping back and self-examination. And sometimes it's hard to separate the two. Three cultural forces existed in the Middle Ages, specifically in the West. And historians talk about these forces and how they changed Europe dramatically. The first force we'll talk about is Romanitas, or Romanness. This is describing the aesthetic structures, values, philosophies, and mythos of ancient Rome, and also denotes nostalgia for Rome and the Roman ideal. This is hard for us to imagine, because we don't sit around daydreaming about Rome anymore, but they did in Europe for years after the fall of Western Rome. It was considered a huge loss, an unfathomable loss, of one of the most powerful, developed, successful cultures and civilizations in history. And people could not wrap their minds around how Rome had been taken over by foreigners. And they lost this sense of identity. We can imagine, as Americans, and we've only been a country for a couple hundred years, but if suddenly barbarians from Canada invaded America and took us over, and America ceased to exist, people would still feel American in their hearts. America wouldn't go away. They'd still talk about the Founding Fathers, and they'd still probably try to bring it back. In Europe, after the fall of Rome, people tried to bring back Rome for a thousand years. That's how strong the impact was on their imaginations. So this sense of Romanness pervaded their, their ideals. Germanization, I like this word. Um, it used to be called barbarization, but um, I think Germanization is the more politically correct term now. Um, and this is the process by which the Christian faith and the culture of Europe became more Germanic in its aesthetics and languages and values and philosophies. Um, and the Christian faith, when it met with pagan tribes um, in, in Western Europe, was definitely impacted by its interaction with, with, with pagan culture. And then lastly, Christianization, and this is the process by which something became more Christian in aesthetics and structure and values, etc. So we have these three, three forces at work. Think about a stool with three legs. That's the culture of the Middle Ages in the West. We have the Roman aspects of the culture, the Germanic aspects of the culture, and the Christian aspects of the culture coming together and conflating and bringing us this brand new culture of medieval Europe. We're going to talk about Romanitas first. This is Rome, beautiful city. After Constantine uh, became emperor, 
there were constant battles over the seat of, of the emperor. There wasn't necessarily an obvious hereditary line of succession, so people were always grappling for power. And some of those people were Nicene Christians, and some were Arian Christians, and some had a different interpretation altogether. But one of the people who came to power shortly after Constantine was a man named Emperor Theodosius I. And he was an adamant Nicene Christian. And he took all of his Roman values and applied them to his Christian theologies. And so he used force, political power, the military law and order to um, create a Christian Rome. He banned all forms of pagan worship, destroyed pagan temples and pagan idols. He banned the Olympic Games. He enforced the Nicene Creed as law. And like all other emperors, he was challenged by other emperors who disagreed with him. But he had a huge influence over uh, creating a Christian West. The fall of Rome um, left an absolute scar on the imaginations of the European people. This happened uh, in the late 5th century. And in fact, Rome remained. It was just that the ethnically Roman emperors were replaced by Germanic leaders. There was a tremendous impact on the church, however. Um, in 445, the Western Emperor um, Valentinian, who was hanging by a thread in the West, facing constant barbarian attacks, makes a deal with the Eastern Emperor, and um, he names the Bishop of Rome Rector of the Church, or the highest pastoral role in Christendom. And this is where we start moving from a church organized around a sense of consensus from the bishop to a church that's giving more and more and more authority to one bishop, the Bishop of Rome, whom we know now as the Pope. A few years later, the Visigoths sacked Rome, and that ended Roman rule in Italy. The church remained a powerful spiritual institution, but it did lack any political authority, and it lacked protection. And this is critical because the church suddenly became very reliant on the state for military protection. The Bishop of Rome wanted to remain in Rome and lead the church from there. However, um, unsafe to do so because the church was under attack uh, in Rome. And so foreign military from kings and the emperor of um, Eastern Rome would come and protect the Pope and try to reseize lands in Italy. And this engaged the, the church in several decades uh, worth of battles with local tribes. This is a picture of the Council of Nicaea from last week that I brought up. There's Constantine down there. And this, I'm, I'm bringing this picture up again to just show a distinction. Um, the Council of Nicaea was a time where people wanted consensus. They wanted to discuss. Um, and then suddenly, we have more and more authority going to one person. And after the Bishop of Rome was named first in command, pretty quickly after that, the Bishop of Constantinople, Constantinople was named second in command and also given special privileges. So now we have these two bishops, um, the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople, and they're uh, in a little bit of a rivalry over who's going to have more authority within the church to the extent that eventually they're going to split completely from one another. This is um, what's known as papal primacy. 
which was the moment the Bishop of Rome was given the highest position within the church by the two Roman emperors. And it's interesting that the Roman emperors decided who, were going, who was going to be in charge. They based this on the inheritance of um, St. Peter's position and Peter's merits within the early Christian church. The dignity of the city of Rome, just a lot of respect for the history of Rome as a place. And the role the Bishop of Rome played at the Council of Nicaea. And what was issued within this, this edict was that any bishop who refused to answer a summons from Rome could be forcibly extradited from his province and disciplined. And it wasn't the churches who would be responsible for extraditing these bishops and disciplining them. It was the state. Because the emperors had embraced and endorsed the Bishop of Rome as the leader of the church. Here's the first discussion question I have for you. Okay, so you can turn to someone nearby you, please do. And I want to ask you this, practically speaking. Why did the church need the state? This is where we start to see this marriage form between um, the government and the church. And it's a symbiotic relationship, and they both needed each other. Why did the church need the state? Why did the state need the church? Second part's a little harder to answer, but they both needed each other. What do you guys think? Discuss among, amongst yourselves, and I will poll you in a second. All right. Let's start with this first question here. Show of hands if you'd like to chime in. Why did the church need the state? Let's start there. Some reasons the church might have needed the state. Okay, good. Yeah, they needed protection. Absolutely. The church at that time, although later they would have their own military, <laughs> early on the church did not have their own military. So they needed military forces to protect them from, from persecution and invasion. Absolutely. What else did they need the state for? Yes, to uphold the law. This is really interesting and convoluted, and we get to the Inquisition in a few minutes. We'll try to make sense of this a little bit, but there was no separation of church and state um, in the sense that uh, the state and church were opposed to one another in any kind of way. They worked together, and the state was actually, the secular authorities, were actually the ones responsible for disciplining, punishing, and torturing heretics. Um, the church was um, the group responsible for indicting heretics. So once someone was named a heretic, they were named a legal criminal, an enemy of the state, and then they were punished by the secular authorities. So we had the secular authorities enforcing the rules of the church. So it was like their police, basically. Um, let's try this next one. Why did the state need the church? This one's a little harder. Yes, credibility. Absolutely. People in this period of upheaval, political upheaval, were very loyal and very zealous and very pious people. And they wanted to obey their bishops and they wanted to obey their pope. And so if the pope said, respect this emperor, follow the emperor, the people would follow suit. They were afraid for their souls first of all, but they also wanted to do the right thing, and they wanted to be in unity with the church, and they wanted to obey. These were often very well-meaning people who just wanted to do what they thought they were supposed to do. And the Pope could speak on behalf of the emperor and get people emotionally involved in a cause 
that they felt had divine implications, not just political ones. And you'll see this later on. You'll, you'll see things happening like the Pope wants to um, punish a king for being disobedient. So we'll have kings who are disobedient to the Pope and say, oh, I don't have to listen to you. I have an army. And then the Pope will do something like deny the communion for an entire country until the king agrees to obey the Pope. So the Pope had an incredible amount of power because the people were more loyal to the church than they were to their own kings at times. And if the Pope wanted to exert a power play like that, he could do so. So the, the state needed the church also because the, the um, entire continent of Europe was up in arms over this controversy and military conflict going on between the Roman people and the Germanic people. It's like war after war after war was breaking out. And the only time that was able to be brought to a stop was when those Germanic tribes finally converted to Christianity, sometimes at, by their own free will and sometimes by force. And Christianity became the unifying glue of Europe. It was like the missing piece. If you think about it like a three-legged stool, if you get one leg of the stool out, the stool will tip over. Christianity was the stabilizing force in Europe. So the question about papal primacy and the authority given to the Pope is a question of hot debate among Protestants, members of the Orthodox faith, and the Roman Catholic Church. And here's what Protestants and Orthodox people might say about the, Ro the Roman papacy, um, that it's a man-made institution forged in the name of political power, and it was never meant to grow into the institution that it became in the Middle Ages. Whereas the Catholic Church would say, no, in fact, the Roman papacy was not a human institution at all, but simply humanity's recognition of a divine institution that had existed since the days of the apostles. So they are tracking their pope all the way back through this lineage to Peter, because Peter founded the church in Rome. And so the people who fell into his footsteps were the people who believed they held a, a certain amount of spiritual authority because they were leading the church that had been led by Peter. So it wasn't that it was created by humans, it's that it was finally recognized for what it had been all along. And this is often what, what um, theologians of the Catholic Church will say about things um, and developments that happened along the course of history within the Roman Catholic Church. Not that they were created or new, but recognized. So, hot debate still today. Uh, even so, regardless of how we view that, um, Roman culture had a tremendous amount of influence over the, the Western Roman church. Some of the things in the church that came from Roman culture were a strict hierarchy of the church, which mimicked the structure of the Roman military in terms of how it was organized. The Christian values and theologies were adopted into this structured and rationalized Roman legal system. Um, the title Pontifex Maximus, um, or the great bridge builder, um, was a title given to Julius Caesar, eventually became a title given to popes. So in some ways, emblematically, the pope is 
seen as standing in for the Roman emperor even today. Uh, military conquests abroad were replaced with missionary conquests abroad. And we see the emergence of domes and arches in our church architecture, and then the vestments for the clergy were inspired by the dress of ancient Romans. So we have a lot of Roman culture infusing this major institution that still exists today and has for a long, long time. We still see that Romanitas in the church. But the Romans did not have a monopoly on Christianity, much to their chagrin. We had a vibrant uh, Greek-influenced Christianity in the East, and then in the far, far West actually uh, had an emergence of Celtic Christianity, which was culturally distinct from the Christianity of Rome. And uh, this is Ireland. And the earliest Christians in Ireland were there as early as 450. Okay, so we had early, early Irish monasteries and Christian communities thriving in Ireland, sending their missionaries out, and sometimes with a different message than the Roman missionaries had. And these people would come into conflict with one another. Quite interesting. So we'll talk a little bit about, um, uh, about Celtic Christianity, specifically Celtic monasticism. Christianity came to Ireland by the late 400s, and the tradition says that St. Patrick brought the faith to Ireland after being captured by pirates. Um, there's a lot of legend around St. Patrick, and um, it's a very important part of uh, Irish Catholic culture. So these Celtic Christians, how they lived, it was, they were kind of like monasteries, but they were unisex, um, co-ed monasteries. Um, they had small walled communities, and those eventually evolved into gender-segregated monasteries and abbeys. The Irish monastic rule was very strict and very pious, and it involved silence, manual labor, fasting, Latin scholarship, and isolation and exile for the most advanced and devoted. So this idea of, um, of uh, hermetic monasticism, monasticism, being a hermit, living in isolation, um, was something that the Irish Christians learned from a group of people known as the De Desert Fathers and Desert Mothers. These were early monks um, that lived in and around Egypt and would live in solitude, um, just fasting and praying. Um, some differences, they had different haircuts from the Roman monks. It's called the Celtic tonsure. They shaved a strip across the top of their head instead of the full crown. And they celebrated Easter on a different day. And they had a very complicated way of calculating when Easter should be celebrated. And the Romans had a very complicated way of celebrating when Easter should be calculated. And they couldn't agree. And this was one of the major controversies between these two groups of Christians. It's hard to wrap our minds around. To a certain degree, as modern American people, it doesn't matter to us as much as it did to them. But remember, we grew up in a place where individuality is valued, and they grew up in a time when unity was the preeminent value. Here's a map of the spread of Christianity. So um, under persecution, you'll see the Christian communities in dark green. From the period of 300 to 600 AD, you'll see Christianity spread throughout that entire region. And then finally, 600 to 800 is when the last of the pagan tribes converted to Christianity. 
Um, this is a page from the Book of Kells. It is a ginger Jesus, Jesus with red hair. So when we talk about um, cultural influence on a faith, um, oftentimes you'll see in re uh, Western Renaissance paintings, blue-eyed Jesus um, or Italian-looking Jesus. Well, this is a Jesus with red curly hair. That would have made sense to the Irish people. They, um, Irish monastics were responsible for um, keeping track of many, many, many important documents, um, both Christian and pagan. Uh, many of these uh, books uh, and documents were illuminated or illustrated beautifully here, and they were um, made on uh, vellum, which was a very, very durable material. I believe the Book of Kells was actually found in a bog in Ireland, um, floating around in a puddle, but uh, you can imagine what uh, quality of worksmanship uh, went into that if, um, if it was able to survive in those conditions. And this, this uh, practice of illustrating and copying manuscripts would take these monks a lifetime to complete. Um, they worked very slowly and very carefully. If they made a mistake, they'd have to start over. It's just the nature of what they were doing. But it was a meditative practice and one that they knew was outside of themselves um, in terms of the contribution they were making to the cultural and historical life of the church. The next thing I want to talk about is Germanization, or as I mentioned earlier, barbarization. Um, this is the term we give to Christianity when it comes in contact with pagan cultures. And that was a very, very important part of uh, the um, evolution of history in the Middle Ages, were the conversions of these pagan tribes. But as mentioned before, anytime Christianity comes in contact with a new culture, it's going to express itself through that culture. And we're going to take a look at some of the ways Christianity in the West became Germanized. So it started to lose some of its Greco-Roman nature or some of its Celtic um, cultural values, and it became more Germanic. But what did that mean exactly? So a little bit of information. This is St. Ethelbert of Kent, a hero um, of uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon England. He was the first uh, pagan king in southern England to embrace Christianity. And he was converted by Roman missionaries who were sent out in 590 by Gregory the Great to bring um, the British pagans Christian teaching. Um, many of the British in the north had already been reached by Celtic missionaries, which posed a problem for the Roman missionaries who had different ideas about things. People often converted along with their kings. This is very, very common. We now value individual choice um, throughout the Middle Ages and even the Reformation, entire communities or cities would convert when their leader would convert. It was a part of the deal. There wasn't the sense of religious choice and religious freedom. Um, you converted when your leader did. Um, uh, this was far from Rome, though, out in the British Isles, and um, Christianity there was influenced by Germanic tribal values. And it took on a different tone in the West than it did in the East. For example, uh, women in leadership was not uncommon in the British Isles. It would have been unfathomable in Rome. Hilda Whitby is one such important figure. Um, she lived in Northumbria. She was the princess around the year 600, and she learned about Celtic monasticism from missionaries in northern England. 
She went on to become a nun, founded an abbey and seven monasteries, where she oversaw the instruction of both men and women. She was renowned for her virtue, character, and leadership, and served as an advisor to Anglo-Saxon kings. She effectively led the Northern English Christian community through several struggles and pagan revivals, and was considered an honorary bishop and was buried in bishop's vestments. So in the year 600, in the British Isles, it was perfectly acceptable for a woman to have that amount of authority within the church. It would have been unfathomable in Rome. And part of this was by necessity. Part of it had to do with cultural values. One other king we should mention is Clovis. Um, he was the first king of what is now modern France to convert to Christianity. He was led to the gospel by his Nicene Christian wife, Clotilde, or Clotilda, great names. And he established what was the first kingdom, pagan kingdom, um, that was in line with the, the Western Roman church. That's him being baptized. So here are some Germanic and value, values that were imparted to Christianity as the Germanic tribes converted. Interestingly enough, a strong emphasis on marriage and bloodlines. Not uncommon to hear about the importance of family and marriage in the church today, but this was not actually seen as a primary value in the church in late antiquity. Interestingly enough, singleness, celibacy, was valued as a higher form of piety than married life. The Germanic tribes changed this because family values were their number one priority. Some other things, um, <laughs> brute force and mystical miracles settled theological disputes as opposed to logical scholarly discourse. So you'll see St. Augustine writing about his conversion to uh, Trinitarian theology, and it came through scholarship. He was suddenly went into a religious ecstasy while reading scriptures, okay, and became convinced in his heart. For the Germanic tribes, theological disputes were settled by who won the battle. Or, in the case of this picture up here, what was called trial by ordeal whereby two people might be having a theological dispute. Um, this was a common practice written about by a, a histo French historian, Gregory of Tours, whereby, say a man is debating about the divinity of Christ and saying, Christ is fully divine and fully man at the same time. And someone else says, no, Christ is fully man and the Father is fully divine. And they're getting into a fight about it. Well, someone might come up to them and say, we need to settle this theological dispute. Now, they would not be asking to bring evidence and scholarship and a rational discussion to figure out who was right and come to some kind of consensus. Instead, they would drop a ring into a boiling pot of water, and they'd say, both of you, reach your arm into the boiling pot. Whoever's right, God will save from any burns by a divine miracle. And people would plunge their arm into the pot, and if they got burned, they were wrong. And if, they were, uh, if their arm came out unscathed, uh, then they were right. There's many, many, many stories, whether they are fictionalized or legend or maybe true, not going to discount the possibility of this, 
where um, Nicene Christians who upheld the Trinity could swirl their arm around in a boiling vat of water for 15 minutes and come out unscathed, and then everyone in the town converts. Tale after tale after tale of this written in the history books. This isn't a Greco-Roman way of settling a dispute. This is like the Viking way of settling it, right? And this trial by ordeal was the way that leaders throughout Europe started handling spiritual matters. In which trials, throw a witch into the water, see if she floats. That came from the Germanic tribes. It didn't come from Rome or Greece, which were very rational, educated cultures. Um, emphasis on the feminine, so emphasis on the Virgin Mary, um, female saints and martyrs, or female leadership, embraced by pagan cultures. Feasting and festivals to celebrate martyrs. Aesthetics and art. Pagan temples were co-opted as churches instead of destroyed. I'll talk about why in a moment. And then pagan holidays co-opted as Christian holidays. Like this one. I love talking about Christmas because it is my favorite holiday, but um, all scholarship would tell us Jesus was probably born sometime in the early fall, late summer. So why do we celebrate it on December 25th? Well, there's been debates raging about that, but in the Middle Ages, scholars started writing about the reason for this. And one very popular accepted viewpoint is that um, Christmas fell in line with the Roman pagan holiday of Saturnalia, and it fell in line with the winter solstice, which was practiced by Germanic pagan tribes and Norse pagan tribes. And it was important when these missionaries were going to these regions to convert people that they didn't destroy their culture in doing so. We can imagine if Canadian barbarians came down and stormed California, and tried to take away the 4th of July, that we would be really sad about that, or tried to take away our Thanksgiving. There's Canadian Thanksgiving. It's not the same thing. Oh. <laughs> Even so, there aren't very many Americans who would willingly give up their Thanksgiving holiday. So if we can let Americans continue to celebrate Thanksgiving, but we call it something else, and change a few of the um, images associated with it, we can go on business as usual. This was seen as a gentle form of evangelism, and it was highly effective. Instead of destroying everything pagan, they just transformed it. So the practice of putting a tree inside your house in the holidays, that comes from Saxon pagan faith. We now attribute all of these Christian ideas as to why we do it. The wood represents the cross, and no. Yeah, it's a nice try. Here's a letter from Gregory the Great to the missionaries. This is incredible. And the way that pagans were evangelized to later on in the Middle Ages is such a contrast from this. You can see the rational Roman mind at work here. He's writing to a missionary. To his most beloved son, the abbot Melitus, Gregory, the servant of the servants of God, how be it when Almighty God has led you to the most reverend Bishop Augustine, our brother, tell him what I have long been considering in my own mind concerning the matter of the English people, to wit, that the temples of the idols in that nation ought not to be destroyed, 
but let the idols that are in them be destroyed. Let water be consecrated and sprinkled in the said temples. Let altars be erected and relics placed there. For if those temples are well built, it is requisite that they, are, that they be converted from the worship of devils to the service of the true God, that the nation, seeing that their temples are not destroyed, may remove errors from their heart, and knowing and adoring the true God, may them more freely resort to the places to which they have been accustomed. And because they are used to slaughter many oxen and sacrifice to devils, some solemnity must be given them in exchange for this, as that on the day of the dedication are the nativities of the holy martyrs whose relics are there deposited, they should build themselves huts of the bows of trees about those churches which have been turned to that use from being temples, and celebrate the solemnity with religious feasting, and no more offer animals to the devil, but kill cattle and glorify God in their feast, and return thanks to the giver of all things for their abundance. To the end that, whilst some outward gratifications are retained, they may the more easily consent to the inward joys. For there is no doubt that it is impossible to cut off everything at once from their rude natures, because he who endeavors to ascend to the highest places rises by degrees or steps and not by leaps. Wow. Just usher them in a little bit. Don't get so worked up over all of these cultural practices that are foreign to you. Teach them. Let them take it a step at a time. Don't destroy their way of life. Under Charlemagne, pagan, former pagan Christian leader of the church, we'll see this completely change to the mass slaughter of pagan people, forced baptisms, executions, beheadings of children, completely different mindset towards missionary activity. This is Charlemagne here. So we see the emergence after Clovis of a Christian France. And in 800, the Pope, Leo III, is experiencing constant attacks from Lombard invaders. And he needs help, and he needs protection. And the Western Roman government is completely gone by that point. And the East is far away. He needs a close neighbor. France is a lot closer than Constantinople. And by this time, there's a lot of controversy going on between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. So the Pope cuts a deal with Charlemagne, and he says, I will make you the emperor of Rome. Rome has been gone 300 years. But they want a new emperor. They're going to bring it back. Charlemagne is stoked. The Pope crowns him emperor, and the emperor pledges his military support to protect the Pope. And we see there the unification or marriage between France and the Roman Catholic Church. And France was the number one supporter and benefactor of the Roman Catholic Church for years. With the endorsement of the Pope and the full support of the Church at his fingertips, Charlemagne endeavors to transform Christian culture in Europe. Some things that he did as emperor um, he thought the church was struggling in France, and he wanted to see higher numbers that would also benefit his projects because more people in the church meant more tithers. So he wanted to strengthen ecclesiastical structures and revitalize spiritual life and bring more people in the door. Music was improved. That was one of his first projects. 
We have rock music in church now, but he made the Gregorian chant super popular in church, and people would start going to church for the music. That was a new thing. Um, the architecture was beautiful and grand. People were so excited to go to church in a big, fancy building. They couldn't wait to go. It was so impressive. That was Charlemagne's church there. You can imagine in your 800 what it would be like to see something like that when you're a person who's used to living in a mud hut. The grandness of faith was very um, spectacular to people. Um, his more practical reforms sought to improve education for monks. They were concerned that monks were not translating documents correctly, and they wanted monks and, uh, and priests to teach well and to teach good theologies within the church. So they started educating their clergy more. Um, they wanted to safeguard church funds and land, so the church started buying up lands, um, suppress residual pagan rituals, often violently, and to make church popular and enjoyable. They didn't want people to go to church out of obligation, but they wanted people to be excited to go, to hear the music, hear good teaching, sit in a beautiful building. It was seen as enjoyable. Um, he funded and endorsed the spread of Benedictine monasteries, promoted the transcription of sacred man manuscripts with good legible handwriting. And so I will also tell you, Charlemagne invented a font called Carolingian Minuscule, and it became law to write in this font only. I'll show you a picture of it in a minute. He standardized liturgy in the parishes. He standardized music and aesthetics in the parishes. He provided education, as I mentioned, and he expanded the authority of the church over family planning and marriage. Fascinating. We'll get to that in a minute. This is Carolingian Minuscule. Beautiful. The law. Everyone had to write in this beautiful, clean, legible font. And here's why. Handwriting had become regionally, regionally recognizable, but outside of one's exact region, no one could read the documents. This is what they looked like before Charlemagne invented Carolingian Minuscule and required all documents to be written in it. No one could read what they were writing. So when someone's act translating the Bible and spending their entire life to create a Bible, a Bible in those days would be worth equivalent today about $10,000 to $20,000 in our today's money because they took so long to make. They were so valuable. But if no one could read them, what was the point? Or people would make mistakes, misunderstand theologies because they couldn't read the handwriting. So we went from, we went to that, okay? That also brings us to an important development within the church, the sacrament of marriage. While marriage was not an official sacrament until the 12th century, marriage under Charlemagne was made sacramental or an important part of spiritual life. Now, in the church, we often emphasize marriage a lot. But um, before the time of Charlemagne, in the Catholic Church, celibacy was seen as the highest spiritual calling. Charlemagne changed that. Marriage was seen as the highest form of spiritual calling, unless you were a priest or a nun. And this was seen as a special part of life for Christians, not just a government contract or what I joke with my students as a fallback plan for the lusty. Um, Paul, in his writings, talks about how marriage is not desirable, but if you can't keep it together and stay abstinent, you should get married, because it's better to experience those emotions in a marriage than, than to burn with passion, he says. So that's how marriage was seen for several centuries. 
a fallback plan if you can't be celibate, you can settle for marriage. Under, under Charlemagne, that changed. Um, and marriage was only between two people who could give their consent, so parents couldn't sell their kids off in marriage anymore. This is a lovely picture from the Carolingian Renaissance of um, marriage under Charlemagne, two consenting adults. Other changes, polygamy was banned. So, seems surprising, up until the 800s, people, Christians, participated in polygamy. It wasn't embraced, it wasn't endorsed or encouraged, but it happened, finally banned under Charlemagne. Forced marriage was also banned, and the church was expected to give blessings of marriage, not just the state. And finally, the biggest shift, no contraception was allowed, prophylactic or herbal, except for abstinence. So um, that remains a value in the Roman Catholic Church today. Um, and the reason for this was Charlemagne wanted to see birth rates go up in France. More babies meant more Christians, meant a stronger France, a stronger economy. So there were spiritual reasons for this that the church preached on, and there were political, economic reasons for this as well. That brings me to um, Germanic family values, which I touched on a little, a little while ago. While early Christians emphasized piety through celibacy, Germanic and Norse tribes viewed bloodlines, offsprings, and the nuclear family as the central value and organizing principle of life. Groups were organized into tribes or clans, and Germanic law, known as Wurgold, was rooted in the ideas of the nuclear family and evolved as a, um, a, a type of um, litigation, essentially, um, that evolved to mitigate retribution and blood feuds between family members. So how it used to work in the, in the Germanic tribes is that if someone hurt your family member, say um, they chopped your arm off, you would go and chop that other person's arm off. And that was seen as tit for tat, now we're square. But what was happening in these tribes was people were literally going back and forth and hacking off all of their limbs, and it became this very, very violent practice that was seen as just. And so what they did instead was start to um, add a dollar value to body parts. So instead of hacking someone's limb off because they hacked off your brother's limb, they had to pay you 100 francs for your left arm, 200 francs for your right arm. So it became this civil um, law. Um, but it was all about family. And if someone harmed your family, they were harming you, and you were going to get them back. And then Germanic and Norse mythology reveals an intense devotion to the ideal of family. Interesting how this idea of family has infused our understanding of faith. Here's Jesus and Paul on nuclear families. Here's Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is speaking in hyperbole, of course. He doesn't really mean for us to hate our family members, but he's saying, you should be willing to forsake all these people, even your bloodlines, for my sake. Family is secondary to the call of the gospel, according to Jesus. Here's Paul. If you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. 
Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, etc., etc. This is Christian culture and what we say about marriage. Focus on the family, the Defense of Marriage Act. Boy meets girl, say hello to courtship. I grew up in this culture. I was obsessed with finding a husband by the age of 16. To the detriment to my pursuing of my own unique calling in the Lord. Took a long time to detangle myself from this distraction. So the question becomes, the way that we practice our faith and think about faith and talk about faith, is it the essential scriptural truth or is it a cultural value? And there's nothing wrong with cultural values. They can be great, wonderful things. It's wonderful that the Norse people love their families so much. That's good. That's not bad. But is it the essential teaching of Jesus? Maybe not. Charlemagne left a strong legacy. Here's some of the things that he did. Specifically, um, elevation of church culture and education is what we can thank him for. But a lot of the culture of the Roman Catholic Church emerged during the reign of Charlemagne, the middle of the Middle Ages. I have to touch on three more points, and then we'll let the kids out. The last thing that I want to talk about, because I think it's incredibly important when we look at the Middle Ages, just often called the Dark Ages, is that the church was engaged in a tremendous amount of violence, political power jockeying, and greed. And the church, in many ways, mirrored the culture of the times. The first major way was the Crusades. We can't get through the Middle Ages without at least touching on this. In 1095, Islamic Turks were migrating into the Byzantine Empire, attacking Constantinople. The Crusades were initially a call from the Pope for military action against the Muslims. So the Pope called on France to fight the Muslims in Constantinople. But there were other goals, aside from religious zeal and an attempt to aid Christian brethren abroad. Some of those goals were recapturing holy land and relics, subduing the Turks politically, exerting Western Roman control over the Eastern Empire. So um, the Pope also wanted to get in there to Constantinople so that he could kind of take over. Um, A justification for violence against the Jews and um, the exercise of papal authority over the Western kings. The Pope would excommunicate people if they refused to answer to the crusade. So we see this political power and greed fused or conflated with religious zeal. It was really hard for people to parse that out and untangle it. Next we have the Inquisition. Around 1230, the Papal Inquisition was started by Gregory IX, and this was to bring law and order to the punishment of heretics and criminals. And um, Dominican friars, who were well-versed in theologies, would carry out the program. They would try to find people who were secretly Jewish, people who secretly didn't believe in the full divinity of Christ or whatever have you, secretly practicing pagan rituals, and they would um, have a trial, and it would be decided whether you were a heretic and you'd have an opportunity to confess, etc. 
This was inspired by Roman law, and the Pope authorized the use of torture to exact confessions and information. That brings me to this last point. It's easy to get cynical about the church in the Middle Ages and go, gosh, what happened? So much corruption. There were bribes. There were sex scandals among the clergy. There was power. There was violence, hatred, and cruelty. But there were also some incredible grassroots movements that emerged during this time in opposition to the culture. Um, Francis was one of these people. St. Francis um, believed he was meant to be a crusader. And on his way to join the army, got a vision from God, and he heard God's voice say, this isn't the kind of soldier I want you to be. And he turned around and he thought about it for a while and eventually started in order. He committed his life to living among the poor, traveling, spreading the teachings of Jesus. He even traveled to Turkey during the Crusades, not to kill Muslims, but in attempt to evangelize the Sultan. And he snuck into the Sultan's tent to tell him about Jesus. And the Sultan was so impressed that they became really good friends and the Sultan made him an honorary Muslim. <laughs> He suffered personal illnesses and is reported to have performed many miracles while spreading joy and peace. And his movement was insanely popular. So I, I say this to encourage you. He's just one example of many. Um, in a violent world, he promoted gentleness. In a power-hungry world, he embraced meekness and humility. In a greedy, money-hungry world, he embraced poverty and homelessness. In a world that valued prestige and status, he spent his time among the poor and sick. In a world torn apart by complicated and convoluted theologies, he embraced a simple message of love. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Yes, animal lover. Um, and so that, that brings me to my last point. Cultural expression or cultural opposition. It's a paradox. We want to stay relevant as Christians. We want to engage with culture. I think Chesterton makes an interesting point when he says, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. Francis contradicted every aspect of the dominant culture. So I'll leave you with this question to think on, and I'd love to discuss it with you after church if you want to talk about it. What aspects of our faith get at the essential teachings of Jesus? And what aspects of our faith are uniquely American? We live in a country where churches have CEOs now, where uh, fruit is determined by the bottom line and how much money is in, in the offering plate, by how many people are sitting in the chairs. We have pastors who fly around on private jets. I read a figure that several megachurch pastors in this country make over $500,000 a year salaries. Sorry, Chris, not going to happen here. <laughs> but there is this justification that happens. Why? Because we want to be relevant. We're Americans. We do things differently. But is that the essential teaching of Jesus? Or is that just something our cultures and informing our faith. So I want to ask, as we talk about the Middle Ages, as we talk about ourselves, as we pray and examine, what are the essential truths that transcend culture?
Sometimes we feel zealously about things without really thinking. Is this really in line with the teaching of Jesus? Is this what Jesus tells me? Or is this what my culture is telling me? Maybe my church culture. I'll leave you with this verse. Just the essentials. When everything else is convoluted and scary and political and confusing, we can cling to this. Because Jesus tells us there is a hierarchy of Christian concerns. All commands are not equal. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. At the end of the day, if that's all we understand, it might just be enough.